All right. Hey, everybody. <clears throat> My name is Tar Hernandez. I am the Director of Systems Engineering for Linden Lab. Welcome to the talk. I'm also an Associate Board Member of Women Who Code, so shout out to the ladies I saw come into the audience, all three of you. <laughs> it's always a fun time at reInvent, right? Um, so here I'm, I'm here to talk about uh, that my team. Uh, I'm basically here to brag about all the really amazing things they've been working on for the past year and a half. And what we've been working on is trying to support <clears throat> our new virtual reality platform, Project Sansar. Sansar is still pretty new, and a lot of people haven't heard about it, so I thought I'd give you a little teaser as to what it is. And just pretend right now you're wearing an Oculus. those auto replays. <clears throat> that is Project Sansar. Um, if you're not familiar with Linden Lab, many people aren't, uh, we're historically known as the creators of Second Life. Uh, it was originally launched in 2003, and you may not be aware of this, but it's still running strong. By all the uh, usual measures in high-tech industry, it has been a ridiculous success. Uh, it's the original virtual experience. It's built almost entirely with user-generated content. Um, and 13 years later, still has anywhere from three-quarters of a million to a million monthly average users. Um, and last year's virtual in-world economy generated almost half a billion dollars in U.S. currency. Production infrastructure is developed fairly organically over time. Uh, runs in a traditional data center. A lot of things were engineered down to the bare metal to take advantage of obscure machine-level optimizations, particularly around graphics. Traditional layer two, layer three network architecture that got kind of ugly over the years. Um, we have been using AWS where it makes sense. We got into S3 around 2008, which I believe is about when it went production. Uh, we had some early attempts at front-end services in AWS, uh, eventually added some production services such as Bloxworld, our mobile product, um, and some Second Life user profile services, which are also in AWS. <clears throat> double ought, or as I like to say, the double knots, the double noughties. Um, lots of new features clamped. Uh, crammed into each release because the lead times were so long, the developers thought, oh, it's going to be two months before I get my next chance, which means they come in hot, which means our QA team, which does not have a lot of automation to work with, is scrambling. That's no good. Crazy huge databases, uh, sharded in a variety of different ways, enormous clusters of primaries and secondaries to ensure replication and data robustness. Uh, we do have a record for our largest database when we lose the primary. We can rotate that sucker in 45 minutes down from three hours. Welcome to 2002. Uh, golden images, we, our builds are fairly complicated. We actually started a configuration management system called PGI, predated Chef. Chef wasn't around yet. I think we were hoping to open source it, but that fell through. So we build the Debian packages that we need. We build the app on top of that. We generate a new golden image Debian uh, virtual machine that we then throw on our hardware. It takes hours, and there is tons of duplicated work. Uh, among the different builds, so that's no good. I mean, it works, but not, it's no good anymore. Sansar is a new platform. It's still under development, technically, but we do have open beta. You can go to sansar.com and sign up. 
Uh, it allows, again, users to generate and share their own uh, content via social VR experiences. And because it's a totally new product, um, from a development and production operations support standpoint, we got to start over. So we want to try and build a best-of-breed solution that includes not only a whole toy chest worth of cool, cool new technology, but also blends in over a decade's worth of experience of what worked and really didn't work for Second Life when it comes to user-generated content in a virtual world. So here are our main goals. Hopefully they seem somewhat simple. They're not, but we, we tried. <clears throat> uh, first of all, do the systems engineers or the developers need to try something out? We should be able to spin up a nice stack of instances off in a corner where they can't hurt anybody and go to town. Right now, this is a very involved process involving logging a support ticket, which gets generated to a systems engineer who goes and talks. It, it's, it takes hours. Like most game platforms, Second Life, uh, like most game platforms, Second Life seems to have at least one jerk to trying to cause trouble, or one system that's acting funny. We're very well practiced at handling that sort of thing and providing round-the-clock care and feeding, but we don't want that for Sansar. We have to lower our maintenance costs. Second Life had, historically, a 24-7 knock, plus systems engineers to escalate to on call, plus a concierge support team, plus the developers and a real screaming emergency. That's dozens of people. The operational cost of that is way too high. So we want to fix that for Sansar. So the goal is to leverage every trick we can find in AWS in that environment, third-party solutions included, so that we can augment ourselves as far as what the operational expectations are going to be and automate the self-recovery as much as possible. I don't want to have to do a 45-minute database rotate that takes six engineers, right? We don't want to do that anymore. Um, and if all else fails, we need to have a really good, super awesome alerting system that tells us, hey, stuff just broke. We also want to get out of the business of the long manual release process. If a code commit passes a pull request and some form of automated criteria, ship it. We don't want to take weeks. We want to take hours. Ah, security uh, and its evil brother compliance. Um, <laughs> so for those of you who deal with games that have in-app purchases, that's sort of analogous to, to what we have. Um, you have to deal with your own form of uh, PCI compliance to handle those credit card transactions, perhaps, that sort of thing. Um, we have the additional headache, which is you can buy into our virtual platform, but you can also cash back out of it. So we're subject to banking regulations. In fact, back in the day, they used to, people used to try and use Second Life to launder money. No lie. They can't do that anymore. So, and if you are familiar with PCI compliance, you know there's a timeline. As soon as a risk has been identified, you're on the clock for how fast you turn it around. So much like a bug fix or security hole in our application that could impact our residents, we also have to turn around and make sure we keep our compliance so they let us keep using credit cards. So we need a fast turnaround time on security deployments. Nothing gets the government going like money and identity, right? So we have to be aware of that. In AWS, we can finally have a prayer of doing this in a way that's not super painful, because right now it's super painful. Self-healing, like I mentioned, I can't spend all of the resource engineering time that we have historically had to do for Second Life on Sansar. We want to make that thing just tight. So we need all those tools. And the rampant ramp up and down of infrastructure and product, uh, we'll, we'll get more on that. But this, this primarily is taking the fear out of big spikes. You get a big spike of users for some reason in physical data center, this is tough. In AWS, this should be trivial. So 
Here goes the first one. <clears throat> Sounds so simple, but it encompasses kind of the most critical aspect of the architecture. As my systems architect likes to say, all of our edges are bleeding. And they do, they do bleed. Um, but for us, it's truly been a good thing to be as cutting edge as possible. We have a long history of this sort of thing. We're particularly, but not, we're particularly fond, but not exclusively so, of open source projects. We like to get in the code. Uh, we've sent pull requests back to a variety of maintainers. Some of them even get accepted. Um, stream processors is one example. We went to Monitorama a couple years ago, and we saw Rob Miller's talk on HECA. Uh, and was like, wow, that's really cool. We came back and we shoved that puppy in. It took work, I think about a week and a half, actually. But that's not that much if you think about it. And it resulted in a cleaner implementation of what we had. So I was like, yay, that's a win. But then, because open source projects will do this to you, suddenly HECA was no longer the shiny and it was deprecated. Now everybody has to switch to hindsight. Like, oh, I didn't want to have to do that right now. But we did it. We had designed it in such a way that it was as simple as possible, and it's actually a lot more lightweight and robust than, and faster than HECA. So another win, one we weren't planning on having to do, but we got it. So keep bleeding those edges. Orchestration. We have tried everything with orchestration. Early prototypes were around Mesos and Kubernetes. We eventually settled on Docker containers managed via Docker Swarm. Um, we were on Swarm for a while. And we sent a lot of bug fixes back up to them, and, and they took quite a few of them. We have a developer in, in particular that at Linden Lab, if you do something cool, we give you love, and at the end of the quarter, that turns into money. It's usually about two bucks of love. We gave him a lot of love that quarter. I think he took his wife out to Napa or something. But we've, we found ourselves having more bad days than good ones, even with some smart guy like this trying to fix it as, as we went. So when our AWS account rep called us and said, hey, we got this new thing called ECS. You want to get on the beta? We're like, yes, please. And a couple of months later, we're like, take our money. And we haven't looked back. We run into the occasional brick wall. I mean, early adoption, you always get that. Uh, the ugliest one was there was an annoying memory leak in an early version of the agent. And we thought that our Zookeeper cluster had fallen over. That was a couple of hours of banging our heads against the wall. Um, but you know, we don't hold grudges. Um, and I'll tell you why in a little bit. It's, uh, it's been a solid solution other than that. So overall, the takeaway is doing the bleeding edge thing, while it can be painful and lead to unexpected changes, uh, ultimately, we win in the long run, actually even in the mid-run, sometimes even in the short run. So we're going to keep doing that, even if sometimes we bang our heads into the brick. And now I have a little funny story about why we forgive AWS. Uh, let me... Let me just say that one thing we're really good at doing at the lab is breaking things. Uh, we're really good at that. So like with ECS, we were also early adopters of S3 back around 2008, like I said. As part of that adoption, we were attempting to migrate somewhere in the vicinity of 500 terabytes of data from our network appliances up in the, in the data center up to the new buckets in US East, which at the time I think was the only real region. And it's only our production data. Let's just shove it up there. No problem, right? Not a worry. From an S3 perspective, it was actually just fine. Uh, but on our side, we, uh, we accidentally broke the S3 uh, name node conventions uh, in our upload script, which in turn caused the upload to block. Uh, S3 politely sent back an error saying, eh, didn't work. Uh, when we got the error code is where we had a little bit of a whoopsie. As many of you know, when you're doing a big data transfer, 
uh, you'll put in an exponential backoff. This is something that allows your code to say, ah, this big transmission of data failed. Okay, let's wait a bit, and we'll try it again. And we did that. We had that. We had smart people. Um, but for some mysterious reason, we accidentally set the number to that backoff to zero, which means we sent the data, S3 said go away, and we immediately tried again. Because at the lab, errors often mean try harder, as the old joke goes. So in any case, after a while, our operations manager at the time got this very frantic phone call for some poor engineer at Amazon saying, whatever you're doing, for the love of all that is holy, please stop. We were dosing S3 out of commission. So for all of you who use S3 and are very pleased with the robustness of the platform, you're welcome. I am pretty sure a whole lot of idiot proofing was put into the system after that little experience. And they forgave us. So it's just love everywhere. OK, so still on the topic of rapid prototyping, we want to be able to safely try things, right? And in as close to the production environment as possible, there's nothing more horrible to hear from the developer that, what do they say? It works on my machine. All right, we don't want to hear that. I'm also in charge of the build team. They hear that a lot, too. It compiles on my machine. So the model to replicate in our environments is as close to production as possible. And to achieve the rapid prototyping and also taking advantage of all these bleeding edge investigations that we're doing, we have to protect the overall system from, from the blood. <clears throat> so when things get swapped around, we want to make sure we don't accidentally break things. Previously, we had a flat data center network. That was kind of fun. It's still kind of fun. Um, our security people hate it. Um, and over time, because of that, the developers fell, trap, uh, fell, trap to the, er, fell victim to the trap of expediency. Oh, I can talk to that database through that endpoint, or that RESTful API, or I can invoke MySQL and just talk to it, or, right, so now we've got a database that has seven or eight different types of mechanisms, which means it's incredibly hard to upgrade, let alone replace. So that was a major aspect in how we designed the VPCs, isolate the data store enforce single entry as much as possible. And, they, and VPCs weren't out when we first got into AWS. When they came out, again, early adoption. Let's get in there. We need to be able to take advantage of this stuff. So we're all about the IAM roles, in addition to the security groups. We'll talk a little bit more about that. It's been an evolving process, right? Always find those bleeding edges. Overall, in this picture, what we're seeing is uh, the back end over here on the left <clears throat> These services have access to the individual PPCs on the right, but through a tightly controlled access point. Um, access through the internet only goes through these authenticated connections. The network ACLs will permit only expected traffic, and that includes expected traffic from other services within our cluster. Again, we're trying to make the, sure the developers are playing nice. The front end, the services in these varied VPCs only have access to each other through public interfaces uh, or an ELB. So instead of a flat network where almost everything can talk to almost everything else, we technically enforce our access policies rather than hope a particular standard is adhered to through honor system because developers are in a hurry and they're really going to forget. Generously, they're going to forget. Monitoring needs. So from my perspective, this is the most important one, right? I'm director of systems engineers. This is, this is where I live. <clears throat> and we spent a lot of time, this is a crazy slide, I apologize, I tried cleaning up as much as possible. We spent a lot of time thinking about how to do this. On the left, you'll see we have a standard ECS cluster image, 
And this is not the right slide. Okay, um, I apologize. I had color coding improved on, on a more recent version. So on our ECS cluster image, we have our Debian AMI from which the uh, EC2 is generated. We also have our base container infrastructure. So you can see OS and container, that's, yeah, sorry about the typo. So depending on whether or not you're the underlying operating system or the container, you'll go into some level of streaming, right? Ultimately, you can see it was HECA, now hindsight. We go through a VPC peer into our MMA stack, which is in a whole different environment, into Kafka aggregation. From there, we go into uh, hindsight consumers that do fun things and then generate it out into a variety of locations. So from a systems engineering perspective, uh, we, as much as possible, have structured data. If any of you know uh, Charity Majors, she has really funny quotes about not using structured data. I won't repeat them here because we're polite. But our structured data goes into InfluxDB, and then sitting on top of that is Grafana, which actually has a pretty decent interface. Um, logs, which we don't like logs, but logs are kind of a thing that we have to support. That goes into Elasticsearch and has Kibana at the moment sitting on top of it. We're also looking at other third-party solutions around that. Again, keeping it bleeding edge, always be willing to try things. We use Sensu uh, for the actual alerting. It does passive and active. We output our stuff to PagerDuty and Slack. And if we need to review the Sensu alerts, we can look at Uchiwa. So it's actually pretty cool when you log into our infrastructure VPC. Um, it sits behind Google Authentication, so it's wide open, really easy to get to and we have a wealth of information at our hands that in previous infrastructures you often would have to log in directly to the individual host to see. <clears throat> Continuous delivery and deployment, still maintaining security. Again, security is an important thing for us. It, it instructs a lot of what we do. Another crazy slide. So we have two parts of the pipeline. The pipeline is sort of this meta existence that we use to describe the overall process by which we go from developer to user. So the first part is the build. Starting with the right side, you'll see here, it generates our base AMI upon which our containers will rest. There's a base image config in a repository, so we're really into infrastructure as code. We use Bootstrap VC to generate the image. We use Packer to overlay things like our authentication mechanism, security hardening, other types of things, and all the things necessary to play nice with the ECS clusters when we get to that point. Load it up into uh, where it needs to be for AMIs to reside, and away we go. And this, again, this is also where we deal with security, because usually it comes in as like a Debian security alert or some other form of CVE. We have to get on them right away. So responses usually grab it, take that upgra uh, upgraded package of whatever it is, check it in to our config, run the pipeline, wham, we have an updated AMI ready for testing. <clears throat> On the left, we have our container builds. Again, starting infrastructure as code, we've got a GitHub repo. We use bash brew uh, to generate the container. I'm sorry, yes, bash brew builds. <laughs> There's so many pieces to the pipeline, I'm just a, a lowly director. So bash brew generates the base container, then we have some scripted plugins to do some uh, congregation of the application that's built, other things that the application might need, Apache, Nginx, that sort of stuff. Adds that into uh, our own hosted registry, um, but using the ECS uh, API interface. Okay. We also have some uh, metadata for each individual build that goes into an S3 bucket. 
talk about that in a couple of slides. We're not using ECR because at the moment we're fine with what we've got, but we are keeping an eye on it because we don't know what features that might benefit us in the future, right? So keep it loose. Every one of these pieces is relatively plug and play. It wouldn't take more than a week to replace any of them, I'm guessing. At least that's what my engineers keep telling me. Um, there's another area where we've had to do a course correction, actually. So the section where it says it's a scripted plugins, we're using the Jenkins interface, we wrote a little groovy code uh, to handle the container repackaging because we were using drone. All of our stuff's in GitHub, drone talks to GitHub, it's great, except the drone, EC, the drone agents were failing all over the place. We'd have to restart them all the time. It was causing us a lot of headaches. We're like, fine, ditch it. We'll write our own for now. Maybe drone will be fixed in six months. Maybe there will be another solution that we can use. Maybe we'll use an AWS solution. We're gonna wait and see, play it by ear. All right, more goals. Security self-healing, rapid ramp up and ramp down. Ramp down is critical. You wanna, you wanna not have to spend the money on the troughs. Physical hardware, you're spending money on the troughs. So here's the second part of the pipeline. This is, this is where we're cooking with gas. Deploys. At the bottom, uh, you'll see our repo holding our CloudFormation templates. Uh, those are then dynamically generated into, uh, into a CloudFormation JSON using Troposphere. Um, and we have a wrapper script that does all the interesting things around that. There's all sorts of useful information in this process. IAM roles that we're going to use for the cluster, security groups for the individual instances, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it passes all of that information as a recipe to AWS, which in, then uh, which in turn cooks up a launch config, which is referenced to our pretty new AMI that we built on the previous slide, <clears throat> as well as setting up the auto-scaling groups that you see there. The auto-scaling group is built in with the config that it needs, so it knows which uh, ECS cluster images it wants. Right. All comes together, it's a little bit, little bit goofy. Once that mad scramble of creation settles down, the completed auto-scaling group launches the instance or instances based on the initial config, and now those instances are ready to receive what's going on up top. So the app containers go through their own deploy process. The deploy's kicked off, so the developer has checked in some bug fix, whatever, and based on the parameters passed to the script, it grabs necessary data from S3, that metadata that we were talking about here, app deploy info, could be anything. This is uh, basically at the product level at this point. From a systems engineering perspective, we don't have to care what it is. <clears throat> so this includes which container to pull from the Docker registry. It sets up the ECS task definitions as well as the ECS service uh, that will use them. The auto-scaled EC2 instances that we set up below are ready to receive them. We search for them by tag. We start flinging out containers uh, based on the service definition, and away we go, we have a running product. All of this, again, is done uh, in a Jenkins pipeline that's really lightweight. We use the Blue Ocean interface and the pipeline plugin, and it's super simple. I always tell people, if I can't understand it, it's too complicated. And if you're hit by a bus and it's too complicated, we're up a creek. Keep it simple. Um, for our services that are doing all of this in an automated fashion, different parts of our product are in different uh, areas of development as far as where they're at from a development process perspective. One team in particular is, is doing true continuous deployment. They have multiple deploys to production every day. And it turns around in about 10 minutes. And about six of those minutes are testing. That's, that's the goal. We want everything to be as good as that. Okay. 
sans our image, call it out, direct from the product. So <clears throat> scale, scale is hard because scale changes. There is no, there is no linear curve. It's, it's all over the place, right? And way back when, there was an episode of CSI New York that involved Second Life. And because of that, there was going to be, and really, there was Second Life in the episode. You can go look it up. And because of that, there was going to be CSI-related content added for fans to go log into Second Life and play with, help solve the mystery, uh, if you will. And based on the producer's projections of what percentage of viewers were going to turn around into people who were going to log into Second Life, we were looking at having to potentially support a concurrency spike that was worth about two and a half racks worth of hardware in the data center. That's, if you don't know that, what that is, translates to, that's a lot of hardware. Um, even assuming that you can scramble and come up with that hardware, which, by the way, for a small company is almost impossible to do, maybe you have to buy it. And now what do you do with all this extra hardware that you don't need anymore? Right? How many episodes of CSI New York are there going to be? Right? This is a terrible scenario. I don't want this scenario. So for Sansar, what we want for all intents and purposes is this is push button. I don't even want to have to care about it. I shouldn't have to know other than to pay the bill uh, at the end of the month. If you want to do some big capacity planning thing, you're doing an online rock concert or who knows, you know, prepping for Burning Man, go bank, up your scale. Have your regions be ready for 1,000 consumers. I don't want to care. So we need to build the tools that will allow them to do that. Right? This pick is an early example. The Loot Interactive, which is a digital content creator company. I think they're based out of New York. Um, they partnered with NASA to create the Apollo Museum Experience. Um, and they used Sansar to do it, even though Sansar at the time was still alpha. We hadn't even released beta yet. Uh, but you've got a holographic Buzz Aldrin giving you a guided tour through all of these amazing space vehicles. It's built to scale. Let me tell you, when you, you can log into Sansar now, and if you have an Oculus or a Vive, and you go look at this thing, that Saturn V rocket, I really hurt my neck trying to look at that thing. It's huge. And Buzz Aldrin, that was really awesome. I enjoyed that. So my point is, scale. We all sat there nervously, like, okay, when's the launch? Was gonna be, Buzz Aldrin was actually going to be at the launch. We weren't there. That was over in New York or something. But he was there, and they were all they're putting the rig on him, and there's all these like luminaries that are going to go see this virtual Apollo museum, and we're like, we're watching Grafana. Okay, oh, it's good. Oh, it's good. Look, okay, concurrency is up. Concurrency is way up. How's the systems doing? It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I'm going home now. This is great. That's what I want for Sansar. I want that to be true for 10,000, for 100,000. I think it will be. I think we're on the right track for that. Oh, and by the way, I mean, this, this involved not only the graphics, but video, audio walkthroughs, occlusion. This was actually a really complicated region, and we're already supporting it because it's so easy to spin up the hardware that we need. So Sansar. So Sansar itself uses ECS directly. It's not just the underlying production infrastructure. And the reason for this is because it's easy. I always tell my engineers, why are you in implementing this? Convince me that we need to implement this because I'm sure there's a solution out there we can use. Um, of course, my developers, they, they actually go out and find stuff. So the Sansar backend server team realized that they could leverage ECS API to augment what they needed for how you get to an individual region. Um, 
And that, that's just one of many. There's also the web store, you know, where you can go buy things. There's a, there's a client-side application that actually does all the rendering. I don't care about the client-side application other than it's fun to use. But the back-end services, this is really cool. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this. Here's the Atlas. So you log on to Sansar, and you see this collection of places you can go visit. Right? You hit visit, and all of a sudden, a whole bunch of things are happening under the cover, but still in the application layer. <clears throat> so it's, it's not just simply a matter of setting up an auto-scale group. From my perspective in systems, it's just an auto-scale group. Do we have enough hardware to support the load? In this case, each Sansar experience is generated on the fly as need dictates. And it's unique. <clears throat> and it cor corresponds to an individual container. And it can hold a certain number of users. So when you select experience, the region conductor, which is Sansar code, has a look to determine whether or not that experience is already running. If not, it fires up the correct container. We have those ECS cluster uh, EC2 instances waiting, so firing up the container takes seconds. So from the user perspective, it's glorious. <clears throat> um, so if the region's already running, it's even faster, network time. The region conductor checks are mostly based on Redis cache or even ECS directly on whether or not something is up and live and ready to receive users routed to it. Redis is populated by LogWatch, which goes through SNS, which goes to Kafka, because everything goes through Kafka, which goes to Redis. Along the way, Lambda gets to poke uh, to uh, add or remove services as instructed, depending on the policies around that cluster. And, and this is what I was talking about. You scale up, you scale down. To me, down is important. I have to write the POs. So from a business perspective, nobody's in a scene, that scene goes down. In Second Life, nobody's in a scene, that scene is going right along, eating colo rent and power and HVAC and all the other things we have to pay for. So downscaling is critical, but we have to be smart about how we do it. And frankly, it's, we're honestly, we're still working on that heuristic. Because maybe it's a super popular region, and just because somebody's out now, five minutes later, statistically, maybe they'd come back. So we don't want to shut it down, right, because we want to maintain high speed. So we'll figure this one out. Um, and we don't want to stop at just eliminating the unused container, because what does that actually buy us? We don't pay for containers. We pay for the instances. Right? So what we want is the number of scenes uh, or, that reduce to start thinking about reducing the size of the overall cluster, because then we start saving the money. So maybe we're like, oh, we're going to have a planned maintenance for 30 seconds, and we're going to switch you over to this host. Right? So we want to be smart about how we maximize our value for the services, the resources that we're consuming. So imagine if one region server typically has uh, four active scenes and three of the scenes shut down. We're now paying for a full EC2 instance for one scene. Get them out of there. Move them around. So I suspect this will take probably the longest of all of the things that we do to figure out. Another place we're using Lambda for Sansar is in our store. So here are some of the things. These are all user-generated. We have some really crazy, talented people that are playing around in Sansar right now. So they up and upload an image, which represents what they're going to have in their storefront. That image upload tr triggers an S3 object-created trigger that kicks off a Lambda function that then goes through and turns it into thumbnails of various sizes, so that depending on resolution and other types of things, you can see the image. Um, the original version of the equivalent functionality that we had in Second Life was an old Perl script using image magic. So, uh, and image magic is still probably the single greatest source of security fire drills in high tech industry. So this new way of doing things to me is kind of like going from eating ants and grubs in the trees to uh, sitting down at Bouchon. 
for the uh, price fix meal. I mean, I get chills at how simple this is now. And because it's Lambda, the currency uh, that we use in Sansar is called a Sansar dollar. And there's an exchange rate uh, between it and US dollars. Um, in Second Life, it's Linden dollars to US dollars. Speaking of Second Life, we're going to try and retrofit an old friend. I have a data center. It's in Arizona. It has a lot of old hardware in it. So I have to think. I'm responsible for paying these bills. Is it going to be more cost effective for me to spend the half a million, three quarters of a million, million dollars to upgrade the hardware and buy the new network switches and all the other things? And because we're buying new hardware, we're probably going to have to buy new racks. And that means we're going to have to lay new fiber. And that's a lot of money. I work for a small company. My boss doesn't like that idea. I'm like, hey, we're still making a lot of money. We want to keep this thing going as long as possible. So we are actually going to try and retrofit Second Life, a 13-year-old data center design product, into AWS. We're going to containerize it. We're going to have to figure out how to solve the fact that there's eight different ways to access a single database. But we're already working on it. We've already found our bleeding edges. There's a really cool new product called Proxy SQL. We think we'll be able to fake a lot of those connections where it makes, looks like you have eight different connections in the database, but actually you have one, right? We're looking at things. So for Second Life, we'll probably go in using an EC2 instance with a MySQL image on it. We're using kind of an old version of MySQL right now. Database upgrades are hard. Eventually, we want to get into RDS. Sansar is already in RDS, but eventually, we want to get that into Aurora because of scalability. Always lots of options, always bleeding edges. So hopefully next year, we'll be, talking, we'll be back to talk about how this migration went. And we'll be running a 13-year-old product on a brand new cloud. Yeah, how hard can it be? Like I said, exciting technical debt, the flat network to VPCs. Oh, this is a good one. Assumptions around proximity as it relates to latency sensitivity. We have things that are so sensitive that if they're in separate racks, they don't work. And we haven't fixed them yet because we haven't had to. Well, we have to fix them now. Oh, and the last one, third-party Second Life viewers. The single most popular Second Life viewer is not one that we control. That's good and bad. It's great because we have an engaged user audience, and it's bad because nothing ever dies. So when we move this thing, we have to make sure we don't break stuff. But I have a really smart team, and I think they're going to pull it off. In the meantime, go play with Sansar. It's pretty fun. Now, any questions?